0: Welcome to episode six of the Missing Stone podcast, everyone. With Thanksgiving next week, there will be no new episodes. So make sure to tune into the next episode on Wednesday, November 29th to hear a great conversation about urban wildlife refuges. I am extremely excited to share with you today's podcast. I was joined by the program manager of the Sharks and Rays Conservation Program at the Wildlife Conservation Society, Dana Tricarica. We spoke about the shark dive we met on outside of Jupiter, Florida, Dana's memorable experience completing her master's degree at the University of Miami while working with invasive lionfish, and then dive into her work with the Sharks and Rays Conservation Program. We discussed the difficulties of building new relationships globally and what it's like to work with a species that's considered controversial. I really hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Missing Stone podcast. I'm your host, Sean Sullivan. And joining me today, I am so excited to welcome program manager for the Global Sharks and Rays Conservation Program at the Wildlife Conservation Society, Dana Tricarico. How's it going, Dana?
1: Hi, it's good. It's so nice to see you. Last time I saw you, I think we were looking for some sharks ourselves. So...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was awesome. The Shark dive outside of Jupiter. So we could just dive right in. I've been wanting to ask, well, ask you. I'd love to have Josh come on the program as well, but I'd love to talk to people. Shark baiting is kind of an interesting conversation to dive right into it. So just, I guess, to do a little warm up here, I'd love to hear, as somebody who heads a Sharks and Rays program, your opinion of shark baiting, since especially down in that section of Florida, it's very uh, con controversial.
1: Yeah, and it definitely is a, a tough conversation. I'm not sure I sit fully on either side because I do see the the benefits to both <laughs> baiting and not baiting. But what I will say, so that that dive that that you and I met on in Jupiter, there is a little bit of baiting going on and it did take me a while to decide whether or not I wanted to be a part of, of, you know, like kind of an ecotourism trip like that. But ultimately what I decided, and I still stand by it, is that in that scenario, first of all, we were floating in the Gulf Stream, right? So this isn't right, right near shore and it's not something, you know, the baiting, it's not going to be congregating in that area for very long. It's going straight up to the Northeast. So I feel like location wise i felt comfortable with it in in that regards but i also do see the value in ecotourism and i think that a lot of the work that we do around the globe is trying to convince people that sharks are worth more alive than they are dead so activities like this where you can get you know recreational divers out there to see you know how charismatic and beautiful these animals actually are it does a lot for conservation as a whole in my mind because you can see that these aren't you know man eaters these aren't crazy animals of course they're wildlife so it, it, things happen but i do really enjoy having people who maybe wouldn't have normally had that opportunity being there being able to soak it in and kind of rallying behind conservation in that way rather than you know fishing for sharks and and trading and trading their parts you know for money <laughs> this is in my mind is is much better although i do of course see how this could potentially t- train sharks to be to act like this around humans to associate humans with food there's no one right answer but just like if you think about zoos and aquariums and the wildlife conservation society actually runs the four zoos in new york and the new york aquarium So we get this question a lot: with what do you think about zoos? What do you think about aquariums? But the big thing is the big thing here is getting people's eyes on the issues and making them, you know, feel like they understand what's going on, that they can understand the animals. So I just think that's another another great way for people to learn more about them and start to care about them.
0: That's awesome. I mean. It's one of those, I absolutely love that dive, but I've always had those same feelings. So it's always, I always find it fascinating to talk about. And I'd love to have Josh on as well, but let's pick a topic that's a little less stressful to make sure we pronunciate right and dive straight back into your first moments or memories that drew you into conservation.
1: All right. Well, (laughs) this is always exciting to talk about. Um... I grew up, I was born in Florida, right by the water, but I didn't live there very long. Uh, I don't remember it, but I'd like to think some of my early memories led me here, (laughs) living by by the ocean. But where I moved to was coastal Connecticut, and we lived right on the beach. Um, So... Of course, I was drawn to the beach immediately just, you know, by being there, you know, we would leave high school or middle school and go to the beach after. And we always had beach days where we would learn about the different animals there, marine biology classes in school. So it was definitely something that I was extremely passionate about and just loved learning. And I think it really came from, you know, being being in that setting. We, we had a great program where I went to school. I actually... It was either this or being an Egyptologist. So So here we are. Somehow
0: you picked the one (laughs) closer to home. (laughs) So Uh, being in the Northeast, were you in the water a lot or was it a bit too cold for that?
1: Uh, Yeah. I'm getting wimpier as I get older, but I was in the water a lot growing up. I was a lifeguard. Actually, I was a college swimmer, so I was drawn to the water since I was, let's see, I was six years old and I started competitively swimming. So yeah, it was. there was surfing nearby. You know, there was really no shortage of ocean activities. You know, we would get oysters with my family, clams in my hometown. So it was all sort of ingrained into me from the beginning. <laughs>
0: So what took you from an interest to, okay, this could be a career?
1: So I went to college. I actually, I, I applied to millions of schools. It was ridiculous, um, which I never recommend anyone doing, but it was partially for school and partially because of swimming. And I ended up at um, a school that I, ju- I wasn't sure still, I kind of was, wasn't was ready to pull the trigger on my On my major just yet. And so I said, All right, we'll go to this school. I went to Siena College in Albany, up near Albany, New York. And I was like, Eventually, I'll do psychology. You know, it's (laughs) all encompassing. Everyone should know about psychology. And one of the prereqs for that was with a professor who became a mentor of mine. And it was actually a biodiversity class. Still can't really remember how it correlated, but. After a few classes and a few tests, that professor wrote on the top of um, my test and said, you have a knack for this. Come see me after class and we and we can chat it through. And so I went and saw her and she talked to me all about this new environmental science program, or I shouldn't say new, but growing environmental science program that she was in, in charge of. And that she thought that, you know, environmental science and that direction was where I was meant to go, which was pretty much exactly what I needed to hear to bring me back to the marine realm. But because I was in upstate New York, there was no ocean. So it was a lot of labs in the mountains learning about, you know, things like climate change. But all of my projects always went right back to The ocean. (laughs) I did a lot of projects on coral bleaching in college, (laughs) but yeah, I think it was it was definitely my professor, Dr. Mangan, who who told me, you know, enough with the psychology stuff, which I did as a minor. But
0: so, if you hadn't had someone tell you this is your path, you're great at this. Do you think you ever would have had the nerve to go for it? Or do you think you'd be sitting on somewhere right now with someone on a couch trying to listen <laughs> to their problems?
1: <laughs> I think I know myself. And I think ultimately down the road, I would have figured it out. Because already everything that I was doing was somehow related to the environment, to, you know, our connection to the environment. Like all of my classes, I that's how I, you know, I was thriving whenever I could learn about something like that, and I th- I think that's what was the cool part is that like I realized that psychology and environmental science are very much linked because it's about sharing your experiences with other people and trying to change their mindset about things. So it worked out well, but and I think I would have gotten there for sure, but it it would have taken a lot longer.
0: <laughs> I do find it. I mean, my probably my favorite professor in college was an english major in her undergrad and then applied to a phd program and just happened to be able to transfer into a herpetology program so that kind of i feel like there's a lot more people than you think that go into college with one track and then switch but i feel like that's a great thing for people to hear so i guess that brings me to the next point is Then with this environmental science, are you able to jump straight into a PhD studying sharks or did that take a little bit of a process to get to?
1: Yeah. So I actually right off the bat in uh, college, I was getting close to graduation and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do next. I was like, oh, maybe I'll travel and, you know, (laughs) waste all my savings Then I thought about it a little more, and I was like, "All right, you know, it, I think like what I really need is a graduate degree. It's a very, very competitive field, and mm-hmm. it's, I mean, you really, really have to put put the the time and dedication into you know, kind of climbing the ranks in this field. And so it was really important to me that I did that as early on as I possibly could. But what I actually did was I ended up getting just a master's at the University of Miami. And I I stopped there. So for me, I always wanted a terminal degree for like a, like a PhD would provide. But the master's for me was very interdisciplinary. So I was able to kind of use some of the psychology that I had learned, some of the science classes that I had taken when I was in college. I could Start to apply it to places, you know, further south in the US. I could use this information globally. So for me, it made a lot more sense to go this interdisciplinary route. Ultimately, what I decided was academia wasn't the correct choice for me. So the master's degree allowed me to explore all of these different classes and programs without just kind of like burying myself in the science. And so I went straight to the University of Miami um, from. Sienna College, and I would say that's that's a pretty general track for most people. Either they go they'll go straight to grad school in some capacity, but you don't always have to do that. You know, it's sometimes it's harder for people to jump back into school. So for me, this was the correct choice.
0: <laughs> I took one year off and was kind of desperate to be back in school. I don't think 22-year-old me was ready for the real world.
1: <laughs> I agree. It was, you know, I think it was better for me than traveling around and not having any clue. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so then what was your what was your thesis for that masters? What was your goal when you went into it?
1: So, this program was a, a bit different than a normal masters program in that it was quicker. It was about a year and a half rather than two years. And it also provided this opportunity for you to have an internship with some sort of conservation program and do your thesis there, essentially. And so I... Was So it it was a little bit harder to pick specifically what the thesis was until you figured out what your internship was, which was pretty cool, but also kind of scary because we were all running around trying to figure out (laughs) where we were going and what we were going to study. But I had the most amazing internship. um, And if I could work there every day forever, (laughs) it'd be so cool, of course, in, in tandem to my current job, which I love as well. But it was at the National Park Service down in Homestead, Florida. So that specific national park is Biscayne National Park. And it's the largest um, marine national park in the national park system. (laughs) So it's mostly all just ocean. And so we would spend our days diving, like looking at different issues with the reef health, whether it be coral bleaching or disease, we would do sea turtle research. But what I ended up doing my thesis on were lionfish. And so I'm sure you know, lionfish are extremely invasive to the United States, specifically Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean, up the eastern seaboard of the US. They're originally from the Indo-Pacific. And so when we, we were there at the National Park Service, they were everywhere. They still are. They're just getting smarter, but we could get them easier then. <laughs> so my thesis is actually taking into account the lionfish that we were working on. And actually, which was this actually would be great because of your, your education background. I went around to different hotels, restaurants, and other local places and discussed the importance of getting rid of lionfish. I tried to get lionfish on menus of local restaurants. (laughs) I tried to talk to tourists about the lionfish. And essentially, I was just trying to figure out, you know, how far reaching I could take this message. So I was using social media and trying to amplify it in those ways. So it was a little bit of a combination between the science that I was doing at the park and then the outreach aspect with the public. Um, it was super cool. It was really a nice way to get close to the community in Miami while also doing some really cool science. We also, my my partner there at the Park Service, who was doing the same internship as me, actually, we we helped create a growth curve as well. So to see how big lionfish are in comparison to their age. So we were trying to see how old they were by looking at the little bones in their ear. And so we all kind of helped each other with our different Different thesis, thesis, theses, theses. theses.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> but I that's really, a while. <laughs> that's really fascinating. When we dove Belize, Kristen and I got the chance, which was awesome. And uh, while there, our dive masters actually had to have uh, stuff to hunt lionfish, and so they actually put it on the dive masters. Anytime you take a group out, I believe by the time we were there outside of Ambergris K in the main uh, reef, the second largest barrier reef in the world, they had it down low enough that they didn't have to carry stuff around. But we went out to one of the atolls and our dive master had stuff with him and actually had us hunting with him on our last dive. But it was interesting (laughs) seeing the difference between, you know, they just immediately saw lionfish and said, okay, every dive master has to help take care of this versus what it became in Florida, which so were you able to see? I mean, you're saying that we're seeing a big drop in lionfish there. Has it been added to a lot of menus? Or is it more so the derbies? What's what's been able to help?
1: To be honest, I'm not sure that they, we we're seeing less because there are less. I do think that a lot of them have, and a lot of them. I think the species itself has adapted. They are just, they're exactly what you could picture an invasive species to be. Like they are the prime invasive species. They reproduce like crazy. They have no spawning, you know, no spawning period during the year. You know, they they can eat really what any. Whatever that can fit into their mouth. But right now, what we're seeing is they're starting to go much deeper as well. So before we were able to go and pick them off diving now, you know, with with the help of remotely uh, remotely operated vehicles, we can see them further down, and it's a little bit out of range of, you know, recreational scuba limits. So, you know, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell where they are. And the, the problem is, is they don't school. So either just one at a time and under little rocks, it's tough. But, you know, get those on the menus. <laughs> <laughs> they're good. They're delicious.
0: <laughs> for, I, for a second, I thought you were going to say they're using remotely operated vehicles to hunt them, which
1: that would be great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like a pretty crazy concept, but be that's interesting. <laughs> So, but
1: actually, and I know I've been chatting about lionfish because I also love them, love to chat about them. But while I was in grad school, I also joined the Shark Conservation Lab that's there. And so that's sort of where the shark aspect that came into <laughs> came into play here. And I'm actually still in touch with a lot of people who went through that same program with me as well and are still in Miami doing shark stuff. So it is a cool program.
0: You're one of the few to leave, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm so, crazy
1: in the sunshine.
0: Oh yeah. Though the summers are a little too much, but uh <laughs> so then from going through this masters and you said you got involved with the shark lab down there, where how did that transition to becoming the head or the program manager of a global shark and ray program? What's that process look <laughs> like?
1: Oh my gosh. It was a whirlwind for sure, as you probably can imagine. So like I said, this is a very competitive field. It's also very saturated, especially around the areas where big marine conservation programs um, exist within universities. So especially in Miami. <laughs> and so it's really difficult to find a job off the bat. And you know, I'm sure that played a little bit into my mindset early on. <laughs> like Maybe I'll do psychology instead. (laughs) I mean, perseverance was the name of the game with this one. I bounced around after the the National Park Service internship. I actually stayed on and um, worked with them for about a year and a half, um, doing similar work as to when I was there as an intern. I worked a bit uh, for NOAA as a contractor doing um, fisheries biology and coordinating all of the observers that go out um, on fishing vessels. And those observers just c- kind of take into account what, what's being caught on these vessels for a federal database. So I was coordinating the observers going on these vessels. Then I started doing a bunch of different nonprofits where I would do a lot of outreach, water quality testing, Big events and fundraisers. So, my background was very, very wide ranging, which at first I didn't think was a good idea, (laughs) but there's only so much that you can do. You kind of take what you can get, right? All of the opportunities were super awesome and I learned so much from them. So, by the time I applied to this job up here in New York at the Wildlife Conservation Society, I felt like I had a pretty Hefty resume to come into a large nonprofit and be able to kind of like hit the ground running because there's so much that goes into these smaller nonprofit, so smaller nonprofits. And then, then I moved to WCS, which is been around for almost 130 years. It's all in like almost 60 countries, but I I felt like you know confident in that. So I actually took a position doing New York based marine conservation through the, through WCS first. That was my initial job, and after. Poking around a little bit and seeing what was out there, I knew I wanted to do more, a more global approach, which helped at WCS. And so I moved from the New York team to the Global Shark and Ray team. But all of this being said, it was a lot of not really completely sure what the end goal was, not really completely sure who to ask questions to, <laughs> and you know, it's it's tough in some fields people don't want to see that you've bounced around a lot but you know in this field it truly did give me the background that i needed to be able to to thrive in this kind of environment this kind of work environment so i don't think yeah you know, there was no linear path and i don't think that that would ever happen it's more of just gathering as many skills from your jobs as you can <laughs> um hoping for the best you know so
0: as you mentioned it's a grind do you mind sharing some of the highs and honestly some of the lows as well or is that a little bit of a tough question
1: <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's so yeah i'm i'm happy to you know some of the highs were that i i've my my circle has grown exponentially you know like i feel like if i ever needed to reach out about anything under the sun in this field i i would have a pathway to get to that person and that's really, really useful to have. I'm sure you know, this is a, it's also a very small field. So (laughs) Um, once you can kind of get, get the in, you can reach out to people and, and learn from them. Um, Being at WCS, there are so many different departments. I just feel like constantly surrounded by some of the smartest people in the world. It's just, you know, I think that's really just been my high is to learn from some people who are just you know, they're cutting edge, great people in the field. Some of the lows are that there can be some egos, you know, and I think in a lot of ways, people, there's a lot and most people in this field are doing this because this is a true passion of theirs, but there's a lot of people in it for the the clout. And it's tough to deal with some of those personalities. You know, I've been lucky, you know, where I am now, we are, we're in a great spot. And And I think that's becoming a thing of the past. Definitely based off some stories I've heard, but it's like any job (laughs) you have to, you have to navigate some of the, some of the people.
0: (laughs) I won't (laughs) ask you to name
1: names,
0: (laughs) (laughs) but I won't ask you to name names, but no. So that actually kind of transitions because you're talking about things of the past and we are in a field that is, I'll say, is trying to become more diverse than is more diverse at this point. But with that, what are some of the challenges that you felt, or not that you felt you faced, but that you faced as a woman in this field, especially since, like I said, it's one that's changing, but definitely when you look at the textbooks, it's all white men. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I actually do feel very fortunate in that I haven't had any really, really horrible situations being a woman in this field. You always, there's always that in the back of your mind, like maybe, you know, I'm not good enough. It's kind of like the imposter syndrome, but it's coming from more of like the gender side rather than, you know, I don't know, maybe age or something. Starting off, you do feel a bit, what's the word? maybe not taken seriously enough and i think that's been the hardest hurdle but as i work my way through this field and and meet others it's it's that i want i want street cred i want people to to know that i know what i'm talking about and i want people to take me seriously and and i do think that's the, the hardest problem for me as a woman in this field having said that there there have been many many issues with colleagues of mine you know who have been out in the field and i've been on boats and i've had a lot worse scenarios than me so I'm very cognizant that that's much much more difficult but it it's it has been and hard but it's also given me a lot of skills that I've needed to stand up for myself to to realize that you know I am meant to be here in this field and the good thing is that it is changing so quickly you know like when we sit in these rooms now it's more women than men most times. And, you know, there's a seat at the table for sure. It's it's already changed even since I graduated in 2015 from, from Miami. So that, that's great news. And I, I just hope it's just going to keep getting better. But I, yeah. I love that you asked that question because I think that that needs a lot of visibility.
0: <laughs> and I actually want to stick with it a little bit more on the advice side because you are in international conservation and you have the benefit to travel a lot. And so what advice do you have for women who are getting into the international side, who are traveling a lot and who are traveling to countries that might not be as kind towards women as ours?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point is that, you know, everywhere is different. Not everywhere is as um, progressive. It's all just about tolerance. You know, I think. Even with food, (laughs) you know, like and recognizing that things don't things don't happen quickly and when i when i say food it's like you go there you're not going to not eat someone's <laughs> if they provide you like one of their delicacies of their cuisine most likely we're all just going to do it and not you know you don't want to be rude not to say that you just take <laughs> take this as it comes when you when you get to these countries. But understanding and not, not being quick to judge is the first thing because you can easily find yourself getting pretty angry and offended. And it, it really takes away from what we're, we are there in the country to do, which is to provide help for marine conservation. So and in a lot of ways, I would have normally said something, you know, like that's maybe inappropriate or you know, not nice. I think I've had to learn to bite my tongue a bit, not to say that that's a great advice, but kind of understanding where these different cultures are coming from has helped me and recognizing that, you know, it's everything slowly but surely is getting better. There's only so much we can do. (laughs) But I also surround myself with really great colleagues. And so to be, to feel safe is important in these countries too. So you want to make sure that you're being smart, that you surround yourself by people who you trust and that way you can kind of navigate any sort of, any sort of cultural differences there.
0: Mentioning that kind of remembering what you're there to do, that kind of is a good launching point for us to actually transition over to talk about your role at WCS. So I want to start just with your general role. What are the primary goals of your role? And what's kind of an everyday... What what does everyday look like for you?
1: (laughs) That's a tough question for me always. It's so funny. So we'll start with yeah. my primary goal here. So as a program manager of our global shark and ray conservation program, I um, work really closely with the director of the program. Um, So it's the two of us who mainly coordinate our Shark and ray conservation efforts globally. We created and launched two years ago, I believe, if I can remember what year it is, we launched a um, shark and ray strategy for all of the countries within WCS that want to really focus on shark and ray conservation and how we plan to do that. And from that, we saw that we have about 14 or 15 country programs that are strictly working on sharks and rays conservation. And we work together. And now we have sort of like a a living document of what they hope their outputs will be, how they plan to achieve that. The ultimate goal would be in 2030, some of these outcomes would be met. So a big part of our job is to implement this Shark and race strategy. And the way we, that we do that is by working extremely closely with those countries that were listed and make sure that they have the support they need. So we can help them from anything from funding. So helping them apply for grants or looking for donors that might be interested. We can help them with you know research ideas, help them with setting up big workshops that they might need in their country programs or a lot of what I've been doing recently. And it's very new to me, but interesting is international policy help too. So it's a really a wide range of things that we help with <laughs> in a wide range of countries, but we we like to go out there and visit them as much as we can so that they feel that, you know, we're, we're a resource and that we can help them. And I, I think the cool part about this is that in some older thoughts about conservation, it was more, I'm not even sure if it was older thoughts, but it was just the way it was done was, you know, people from the Western world come over and they tell you, swoop in and they say, you should do this and this and this. And what we do is we say like, what do you need from your country? <laughs> like, and how does your country work? You know, like, are is it mostly community fisheries? We can't tell them to stop fishing. That's their source of livelihood, you know. So, how do we work with the community? And every country is different, um, you know, to make sure that these goals are tangible. So it's it's it completely varies <laughs> um, what we do. But that's our our main job, and our day to day is so different. It's so funny. So we during the day could be writing a grant. We could be writing up maybe a policy brief. We could be. Sometimes I'm even writing contracts. <laughs> and then the other part of my time, I'm traveling to these programs. I'm helping them out there. Yeah. It's, so, day to day, it's very different.
0: <laughs> you mentioned kind of when you start with each country, you have to meet them where they are, really get to learn how you can support them. So, how does that conversation look country to country?
1: So usually, what will happen is, so we we have a little crew. It's called the Shark Squad. <laughs> so whoever around the world would like to join us, about four times a year, we'll have a call. We'll let them know about any funding opportunities that we've heard of, because we work really closely um, with some funders here in New York. But there's also a lot of U.S. government funds that help out around the world as well. So we just kind of keep our ear to the ground there, uh, keep people up to speed and if we see an opportunity where we might be able to combine a couple of different country programs into one grant with similar conservation goals that's our our number one goal too so to not only encourage collaboration between the country programs but also you know we'll sometimes we'll even yeah reach out to them and say hey, listen i think this could be a really good idea if you think it's a good idea write a framework up for us and we'll see how it fits into Grant with the other with the other
0: programs. That's so it kind of depends
1: who hears about it first.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I guess from there, before we really dive into look at what this process fully looks like, I wanted to ask what some of the hardest issues have been for you, and even if that's kind of personally to face, since you're dealing with sharks and rays, which is very, I mean, it happens to be controversial. And it's a very tough topic. So I just love to ask kind of what are some of the hardest issues that you've had to deal with over the last year or so?
1: Yeah, so Sharks and Rays. You and I love them. And like you said, <laughs> it can be controversial, especially, you know, in the summer months when there are shark interactions happening. It's it's a difficult time to try to be pushing conservation of these animals. So it's definitely one of the harder focus species that I've worked with. Lionfish are easy. Everyone's like, I'm just like, we should just eat them all. Um, but which obviously that's not a cons- really conservation <laughs> flying fish, but, but yeah, I would say the hardest thing, which I, it was a, also a very, very cool and rewarding experience. It was the CITES Cup 19 So that actually is a convention that took place last November, 2022. And it was my first kind of campaign to try to push the conservation. Um, At this like huge international level. And the good thing with CITES, it's a convention of international trade of endangered species of wild flora and fauna. And (laughs) (sighs) I need a breath. So the good thing about CITES is that it has teeth. Um, Countries that don't comply can be fined and if they don't comply for the certain species let's say they continue to trade listed species of sharks and rays if they continue to do this they might actually not be allowed to trade other animal products as well so you think about anything like the aquarium trade you wouldn't be able to trade any of those live animals you know you think about the ivory trade of course that's really regulated now but any animal product is at risk of being taken away if the countries don't don't comply and i think that's really important for CITES. So I've kind of gone on a tangent here, but basically what the hardest part for me was learning the politics between the different countries at this at this convention. So it's what countries aren't getting along, which countries are supportive and which countries are supportive with a caveat, which countries, you know, are buddies or are in cahoots, you know. So it, it was really difficult for me to figure out how to navigate all of the international politics but also super cool. <laughs> you know, you kind of get like a little bit of insider intel into what's going on and then from there you can decide who should I invest my time in trying to convince for these proposals? Who should I try to convince, you know, that sharks are important to conserve? And it was it was successful and we we were able to list 90% of the shark fin and meat trade last year, which was an incredible success. So I'd like to think that we were able to overcome these hurdles in, in politics. <laughs> but definitely confusing.
0: So when you went in, what was your biggest goal? Was it the shark fin and meat trades?
1: Yes. Yeah, so before November 2022, uh, only around 20-25% of sharks globally were regulated in the international trade. So considering how threatened these species are that's such a small amount and if you think about what sharks are used for that's that's a big portion of it they're being internationally traded for their meat and for their fins and even some other d- products like oil or leather has become a new thing so the goal was to really increase <laughs> the percentage of what sharks are regulated so now yeah you know we're getting we're getting close to that 100% mark of of these countries need to go through processes to prove that either the fish that they're trading is sustainable in their country waters or if it's not that they're not trading them <laughs> so yeah it's been it's been a few years of, of a lot of pushing and a lot of political will from from both sides, but the ultimate goal at the end of that was to bump up that percentage. And by this November, all of those species will go into play and they will no longer be allowed to be traded internationally unless proven otherwise.
0: That's absolutely amazing. And this kind of comes out of left field because I hadn't thought of this question ahead of time, but I never really thought of the fact that, especially with those large marine mammals and sharks and rays, you deal with a much larger geography, they're found almost all throughout the the ocean versus as a somebody who's mostly dealt with terrestrial, we usually have a much smaller species range. So I'm guessing that plays a big factor in how you're trying to write up a lot of these proposals.
1: Completely. It's, you know, we think about, you know, their migratory pathways, what countries... They migrate through which countries they're fished in, but don't export to. I mean, there's so much that goes into thinking about this. And, and yeah, you add a whole nother layer of the fact that you can't count really how many are in there. You can't use a drone like you would on terrestrial animals and be able to count. (laughs) It's a lot of, (laughs) a lot of guessing. I shouldn't say guessing. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of, it's a lot of science. But it's it's much harder to convince people of things that they can't really see, <laughs> you know. Scientific and the fact guessing. That they're always, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of you know formulas in play there, so don't worry. But <laughs> it's, it is really difficult, and it's we actually deal with this a lot. as like countries are like. Oh, it's not migratory. They're two different populations. And and then you have to try to decide, are they genetically similar? Can we say that they're migratory or are they two different populations that are staying in, in certain parts of you know, one country and another country. So it gets confusing, but
0: That sounds really tough. So when it comes to CITES COP 19, if you were to boil down your big win in kind of a couple sentences, what would that be?
1: I mean, essentially, you know, a group of probably thirty of us from around around the globe will, were able to effectively manage the international trade of sharks and rays. And I mean, that's pretty much what it is. If you you know, you think about that, we're not so much focused on those local fisheries and those community fisheries that rely on this food. We're more concerned about. It crossing international borders, and so that was the big win. Is that now we're able to cut back on sort of the demand because because it, it now is illegal, and and you hope that means ultimately less dead sharks. You know that's what we're working on here. <laughs> it's like boil it all down. All we want is less dead sharks, and so if there's less demand, you hope that that's the case. But um, one cool thing about this is that. We know that this isn't easy to implement, (laughs) you know, there's 150 or more species now that are listed in CITES and these people at customs, like, you know, maybe at the customs agencies, any enforcement officials, they aren't shark and ray experts, (laughs) you know? And so another big win for us has been that we've started doing workshops With countries that need resources and need help learning how to identify protected species and giving them the ability to, you know, learn how to do this before they get in trouble.
0: (laughs) That's actually really exciting. I kind of want to highlight that for a second. So basically, you went into CITES COP 19 and passed legislation, and now you're reinforcing that with educational workshops globally. So Yes, How exactly. does That's was a that a go. plan? Was that the plan from the beginning, or did you all of a sudden see this law and go, "How are we going to make sure this works?"
1: I think with this, because sharks were really late in the game with getting listed on CITES, we were able to see some of the issues from you know past species that were listed, and so we knew this was going to be an issue, especially because a lot of fins look alike and a lot of shark trunks look alike. And a lot of countries voiced the opinion. A lot of people were against the the listing of this proposal in in November because it's way too difficult to implement. And so, in order for us to get this passed, we had to convince these these countries, which are called parties in the convention, we had to convince these parties that if this passed, they will have the resources to be able to implement it. And so, from the get go, that's what we kept pushing having learned from people from the past. And so now, you know, we've started um, some of these workshops, but it's only going to continue. And funding, obviously, is a big, a big part of this. So on top of planning the workshops, we're planning for, you know, how we can continue to get more funding to support these countries that may not, might not have the resources for these these workshops.
0: And international trade is a much larger issue than I even realized a year ago I volunteered when I first moved here to Denver at the National Wildlife Repository that we actually have here for US fish and wildlife. And so anything that is illegally brought, wildlife related, illegally brought across US borders or state borders ends up in this one warehouse. And I can't share what's in it, but it,
1: <laughs> it was
0: shocking the first time you walk in. I mean, the amount of wildlife trade that you don't realize. And a lot of the stuff that ends up there isn't necessarily illegal to transport. It was just being brought. The paperwork wasn't filled out properly, this and that. But then you also see a lot of endangered species coming through there. And it's a much larger issue than I ever imagined.
1: Yeah, me, me either. You know, I I always dealt with live sharks. So this was a switch for me. But, you know, we've only, I've only scratched the surface of what, of how, you know, international trade works, you know, from the, the point, like from the supply chain, like the whole supply chain, like how it gets to where it needs to go, all the places that it goes through in between. I mean, it's, it's a very, very confusing issue and not really one that I had ever thought I'd be working in. You know, a lot of this is going to become an illegal wildlife trafficking issue at some point. And so that, that's a whole other realm of conservation that, you know, I have to start to think about. But it's, it's really interesting and you realize, yeah, how big of a deal it actually is.
0: Definitely. And I feel like this might be a good time to transition to just, you mentioned looking at one region and what a relationship looks like, kind of start to finish. And you mentioned this South Indian Ocean region. So I think you said that's Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, and Madagascar.
1: Yeah. So yeah, our Southwestern Indian Ocean program in WCS, we've started to kind of break out into regions. And so those are the four country programs that we work in right now, not to say that we can't do more, but it is, you know, an an interesting look into my job when you look at like a relationship um, with the Southwestern Indian Ocean region. So there's actually a lead there for sharks. And so I work directly with him and it started off with just a few emails, like exchanging back and forth, you know, letting them know kind of the resources that we had here um, in New York and it, I mean, it's it's really grown even since I've started. And I've been full time at this role for um, two years now. It went from, you know, a couple of different country programs, kind of doing their own, own things, all great things, and all really embedded within the local community's mission too, you know, which is really important in conservation, like I mentioned. But now we have... After last year, we had our little shark squad, first shark squad meeting in person in Cape Town, actually, in South Africa. Um, the Southwestern Indian Ocean team actually hosted it for us. They invited a bunch of people from there, from the four countries within that region. They invited countries, people from countries doing shark and ray conservation throughout WCS. And we all met together in this one room where we shared how we're collecting data, try to do some data standardization, but also talked about international policy goals, all with the Western Indian Ocean team kind of leading charge here. And so it's gone from, you know, like four different four different country programs to one large Southwestern Indian Ocean cohort, essentially, with a lot more collaboration between us and New York, but also within the other countries in the region. And all of these countries have been really, really helpful in getting some of these international policies passed. So, you know, teaching them how to interact with their governments, teaching them about the importance of CITES. You know, we were able to see support from some of the Southwest Indian Ocean countries for our proposal. So it was starting with no real connection to, you know, being able to create this really collaborative team to instilling them... Instilling in them the importance of international policy and teaching them about that to the point where the people on their teams can now go out and advocate at an international level. And so I'm really excited because most of our programs have now started to become, you know, started to communicate more and have we've started to see a lot of our programs grow like that region has.
0: So when you start talking with four different countries that obviously all have their own politics, their own agenda, their own goals. What are some of the difficulties in trying to find that common ground on how all four can come together and work on this one issue?
1: I think within within these grant reports and or grant proposals, I should say, we kind of separate each of the countries out most of the time with, Ultimately, all the same goal, but how they achieve it is going to be different, and that's what we break down. So, so funders and you know donor and and like I guess donors and funds that are out there really want to ultimately see the conservation impact at the end of the day. So they don't really care about how the politics works within each country. They're more more concerned about what's the impact at the end of it. So we help them sort of navigate any of the internal political processes that they need to deal with. And so that's a lot of us learning about the internal <laughs> country politics. Um, but also because we have this group of countries working on and right conservation, there's a lot of places that have dealt with at least something very similar. And so we're able to connect those two people, which is, it's nice. We're kind of like the connectors <laughs> in a lot of <laughs> ways, <laughs> which I
0: like. So that actually brings me, I haven't asked anybody this yet, but since you work with so many people internationally who are, and I know there's probably a lot of people that come to mind when I ask this, but what's one rock star that's like, this person crushes their position, like absolutely changes the game.
1: Oh my gosh. Honestly, this is going to sound like a suck up. I swear, but I think my boss, (laughs) (laughs) I, he really like, he's found a way to put some of the, the, the best minds and sharks together, keep it working efficiently and make sure that we're covered in all corners of the earth, you know, all he's, and he does it all in a very strategic way, you know, and, and it, it takes a lot of strategy when it comes to this kind of stuff. So for me, honestly, <laughs> Yeah, Luke Warwick, rock star. But ultimately, like when I first started, Sylvia Earle—you know her deepness—of course, got me into the, got me into it. (laughs) Someday I'll bump into her at one of these conventions, and I'm gonna probably get like
0: starstruck. (laughs) We all nerd out a bit, and no (laughs) one else in our lives understands why.
1: I know, right?
0: (laughs) So, as we're talking about this Southwest Indian Ocean region you talked about kind of getting it all started and getting these groups to really work together and how they actually were the ones to lead your most recent conference down in that area or conference or meeting down in that area. So what does that process look like going from introducing them to what it's changed into today?
1: Could you rephrase the question? (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) definitely. So basically, I guess, what are some of the... What are some of the excitement or how has that whole relationship grown and developed? What's some of the growth that you've (laughs) seen throughout that region? That'd be a great way to put it.
1: Of course. Yeah, so so it's actually really exciting. In November, I'll actually be in that region um, because they are actually hosting one of these workshops that I was talking about, so where we can train the government's and show them how to uh, visually identify different species and also genetically identify different species. So now it's gone from, you know, this team that they all worked in their own silos. They all worked in their own, you know, countries, which is completely fine. Um, but when you have this global network, it's much easier and more impactful to work at a larger scale. So now they feel comfortable hosting these workshops where you know, they can be the experts. They can be the ones liaising between the governments, And training the governments about these CITES-listed species. So I think having gone from having not much interaction with CITES to being one of the people actually training different parties in CITES is an incredible sign of growth. And a lot of these countries now are coming to these different conventions, making more connections with governments in the region. They really... I've really seen them take more of a leadership role in the international policy sense. And that's super important in the work that we do. So that's really cool to
0: see. So if somebody wants to get involved in all of this, I mean, I know you're working on such an international level, it's probably difficult for people to get directly involved. But say on a regional scale, if somebody wants to help protect a certain species or a certain region or just a best place to donate what's the best way for people to get involved
1: that's a great question it is difficult you know at this level but ultimately like some of the challenges that we see that are cyclical are our own internal politics in the us <laughs> i really really do encourage people to vote uh, if this is an important uh topic <laughs> for people and 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 their interest in conservation make sure that you look at the the candidates that have conservation at the forefront, because if you, if you don't, and we have less of those people, the funding streams start to run low. There's a lot less like federal funding. There's a lot less visibility on some of the issues that we really need people to know about. And so my biggest, my biggest push would be, you know, really see who's championing, championing, championing conservation. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say of course you should donate to WCS, but if if there's any any grassroots nonprofits in in the region that you are, that's just as important because those those communities in the different countries that we work on, you know, they're being supported also from their countries um, by people that care about, you know, the waterways in that that country. So rather than donating to a large global organization, you can also think about, you know, what do you care about in your region? And ultimately, everything in conservation is linked. (laughs) So you don't need to donate to shark conservation, although, of course, I I would love it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, donating to if you there's a river that, you know, is polluted near you, or, you know, if you donate to like, we have organizations here that plant oysters to to clean some the bays here or anything that you can think of I mean it, that's that's what's going to be the, the most helpful um but voting please please vote and 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 learn about who's in <laughs> who's who's loving of conservation
0: definitely and that's a great way to or a great place to transition to kind of this last and you can do these rapid fire or take your time whatever is best but I love to ask the same kind of four final questions to everyone just to kind of see. I mean, it's been interesting seeing the whole variety of answers I've been getting. And this is all about conservation in general. So the first is just what part of conservation today needs our attention the most. So you were talking about how everything's interconnected. So I know you might want to just stay with that. But if you had to pick... (laughs) kind of an area that you really want to see focused on
1: can i say jobs (laughs) we need more jobs (laughs) i mean working on conservation
0: that's a huge factor too that i don't think people realize is everywhere i've worked i've been told we you know, we want to hire so many more people than we have the ability to hire. It's at Colorado Parks and Wildlife right now. It's the same issue as with nonprofits, as with consulting firms. It's everyone wants to be able to hire more. And there's plenty of people willing to do the work.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, this is... not It's a great field. Sometimes it can be frustrating or sad or... But it's, it, you know, it's a really... It's... It's an impactful field, it's a rewarding field, and the people who who work in it are almost always very hard workers and passionate. So, you know, the more funding that we can get to be able to get more people in there to do this work, the better off we're going to be. And it's probably, the you know, low-hanging fruit there, but...
0: <laughs> no, that's definitely a big one. So the next one, what areas of conservation do you want to see grow?
1: diversity. <laughs> um, that's a big factor. Yeah, I I would love that. I mean, in the work that I do now, I, I there's we are very diverse because we're from all over the world, but that's not necessarily true of a lot of the conservation organizations, large or small in the world. And I mean, I've seen firsthand how beneficial it can be to have that kind of diversity. You can see that you can make huge global change like we did, um, in November last year, but ultimately, yeah.
0: Awesome. So then what concerns you about the future of conservation?
1: I have concerns me about the future is that, I don't know. I'm just worried we don't have enough time, <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it worries me that there's so many other issues going on in the world that this might take a back seat not to say n- those issues aren't important either but you know the future of humanity as as crazy as it as it is to say is is going to be conservation and protecting our our natural lands and and these natural resources so it is a bit terrifying it makes me nervous as we get less vis- visibility on the issue. So I'm really happy you're doing this podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's <laughs> <People> part of
1: <laughs> I never want people to, you know, cause it, it's been an issue, especially as climate change has been ramping up and people have started to notice some of the issues, you know, it, you know, it's, it's c- coming to the forefront, but I worry it won't stay there and people will get sick of the discussion. So we just need to keep it interesting and engaging. And I think this is one great way to start.
0: Yeah. So then on that note, the last one here, advice to future con- to future conservationists. So what would be your advice to people that want to get into this field?
1: Uh, my advice for sure would be to ask a million questions and talk to as many people as possible. <laughs> That's how I've gotten some of these great opportunities. That's how I've been able to create a pathway for myself here at WCS. And, you know... I think most people in this field are really happy to kind of pay it forward. Everyone's kind of doing the same thing, asking a lot of questions, trying to figure out what the path is. As you can see from my journey, it's not linear, but don't be afraid because everyone is doing it and it's going to lead to some really great experiences that can ultimately and hopefully lead to some jobs down the road. So it's all about perseverance, like I said, and all about... Not being afraid to to reach out, (laughs) even if it feels weird (laughs) for a little bit.
0: (laughs) And then I want to end this one on a slightly different question. With we talked so much about how you're in a controversial field. It can be tough because you're dealing a lot of times with looking at, you know, illegal trade, people, I mean, just factors in terms of shark deaths more than how how much we're protecting them from time to time. So what what do you use to keep yourself positive, motivated, to give you a why?
1: I continue to surround myself by the people that are working on these issues. It's I would say in the conservation field, making sure that you have a good team and an uplifting team is the most important. And, you know, we're so busy that we don't even take take the time to stop and think. Why am I doing this anymore? We just all are continually working towards this end goal, and you know, like having that sort of support system has been has been helpful for me to know that you know I'm not the only person who's dealing with this. We're all actively out there working really hard, and everyone's still in good spirits. (laughs) So you know, it's that's been my why. Is you know, I do it for these people that are working really hard. I'm doing it for future generations. You know, whether or not you know. I want to start a family or not. Like we want to make sure that people can enjoy these reefs. People can see hammerheads on our dive in Jupiter. <laughs> you know, we want to make sure that that it, it doesn't all go away. And so so I've been I'm lucky to surround myself by those kind of people,
0: and that was a reference to the fact that I got way overexcited for a single hammerhead coming through our dive and making a surprise visit. But that's another <laughs> great point is you're actually a certified dive master, right?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm an instructor. So an instructor. Podcast is listening and wants an instructor. You know who to call.
0: (laughs) So I was gonna say, do you have any trips coming up that people could sign up for?
1: Oh my gosh, I actually don't. I wish I did.
0: (laughs) Wow. Well, if you do, because this won't go out for probably about six to seven weeks. So if anything comes up, I'll put it in the link.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. That's great. I'll keep. Awesome.
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. And I've had a great time learning so much more about sharks, rays and the international work you're doing.
1: Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to see this podcast, you know, come to fruition. And I'm really excited to to hear about all the other conservationists out there. So thanks so much for the opportunity.